Well, good morning. Happy New Year. I hope your year is off to a good start. Uh, man, that bumper video just kind of gives me some sort of energy, ready to go, ready to, to do something good, something strong. Um, listen, I am a competitive person. I love competition, and the reason I love competition is because I love to win, and I know a lot of you are just like me, because nobody in the room enjoys losing. I'm incredibly competitive. There's no, no such thing as a friendly game of anything in my life. I mean, I will sit down and I will play video games with my boys, and you might ask, well, do you ever let them win? No. No. Why would I do that? Why am I te- what am I teaching them that? If you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. And I may not be the best, but I'm better than you, so you got to beat me. That's what I tell them. And so if you and I sit down together and to play a card game and you get up and go to the bathroom, there's a good chance I know what cards you're holding in your hand when you sit back down at the table. I don't call it cheating. I call it creating an opportunity to win. I learned it from Bill Belichick. I just, that's how I roll. I love to win. I'm so twisted, and I know some of you are just like me. I will be driving down the road, and I will type in the directions to my destination, and it gives me an estimated time of arrival. Game on. (laughs) I am going to try to beat that time at all costs, and you are just like me. You do the same thing. You are breaking traffic laws. You are doing everything you can to win against Google Maps on your phone. We love winning. And the reason we love winning is because we equally don't like to lose. Losing stinks. Losing is terrible. Friday, I was reminded, I was triggered of an experience 27 years ago. I was 12 years old, living in a far, small West Texas town. I was the only Houston Oilers fan in my community, and I was excited because the Oilers had the team. Warren Moon, Lorenzo White, Ernest Givens, it was the team, and they were going to Buffalo to face the Buffalo Bills and the second-string quarterback, Frank Wright. I mean, it was, it, was, it was laid out for them. They go up 28 to three. I got home from church. I turned on the TV because we didn't have DVR. It was 28 to three, and I said, oh, we're going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> No, ended up being the comeback for the ages. The Oilers lost behind the comeback of Frank Wright and the Buffalo Bills, 41-38 in overtime. And I'm just gonna say this morning, it's a little bit sweeter to talk about that than it was last night before the overtime win by the Texans. But we hate losing. I love competition. But in every competition, in every game, in every battle, in every struggle, there's a winner and there's a loser. And we love to win, but we hate to lose. And when it comes to life, we hate to lose. And for some of us, if we were to go around the room this morning, some of us feel like we're losing when it comes to life. And maybe you're sitting there and you wouldn't define life for you right now or in 2019 or in the last few weeks or even the last several years as losing, but you wouldn't define it as winning either. Maybe there's been some things that you're just struggling with. Maybe there's been some failure. There's some choices that you feel like you've made that you wish you could go back and make a little bit differently. You feel like there's a struggle in your marriage or in your relationships or in some of your closest friendships. You're like, man, I just, I wish that this could have been a little bit different. There's some confusion that starts to stir some chaos. Maybe it's a diagnosis of a disease. Maybe it's the uncertainty of the future. It's the loss of a job or a title or a position at your workplace. And it all begins to kind of overwhelm us and it's really difficult for us to look at what's going on in our life and think, I am winning. But what I wanna do this morning as we kick off this series for the win is I'm not trying to create some sort of empty hype 
what I want us to do is I want us to look at something and begin to have a proper mindset as we dive into 2020, as we dive into this teaching series over the next several weeks, that we would understand something, maybe for the very first time. So I want to start in the book of Hebrews, specifically in the chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the author is writing to a group of people, much like you and me, who are living life, but maybe living life in such a way that it doesn't feel like they're winning. They were struggling with persecution because of what they believed, because of their faith in Jesus. They were struggling with doubt. They were struggling with concern. They were struggling with overwhelming feelings and thoughts and thoughts of failure. They were struggling with the idea of unanswered prayers. And the author writes this to them, and it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race, circle race in your guide if you want to, that is set before us. Now he starts off and he sets this, this picture up of a race, but it's not the race that would be like a sprint. It's a, it's a long distance endurance type race. It would be something like a marathon. The word race in the original language was actually the word agon, and it's the word that we get agony from. And it was a word that they used to actually describe the pentathlon. It was, a, it was a sporting competition that happened back in this day where people would compete in a swimming competition and then a running competition. They would get to the end of it and they would box it out. They would put on leather gloves to protect their fists, but to dismember, disfigure their, the, the opponent's face. I mean, it was an agonizing experience, an agonizing event. I believe in 2020, the Olympics needs to add that back in. I mean, Michael Phelps going out, goes up against the guy that he against from South Africa. I think his name was Chad LaClose or something like that. You remember the guy he was frowning at in the warm-up room? I mean, there was a rivalry there. Let's just say they go out and run, then they get in the pool and they swim, and at the end, it's a cage match. Michael Phelps versus Chad. I mean, that's next level. I'm watching that. Ratings go up for the Olympics. But that's what the, the author is trying to get us to see. It's a picture of this agonizing event, and he's using it to describe life because life can be difficult, life can be agonizing. Even as a follower of Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus, we begin to trust Jesus with our life. It doesn't make us immune to the difficulty that life presents, and so he wants us to have a proper perspective. We've gotta have the right mindset. I had a high school baseball coach that started telling us as a baseball team, he says, you guys gotta know how to win. You've gotta know that you can win before you ever step on the field. He said, some of you walk onto the field and you already assume that you're going to lose. He says, you'll never win if you assume you're going to lose. And I think it's the mindset that the author is trying to set up for us this morning. And so as we move into this, as we move into 2020, I think there's four steps that we can take to have a winning mindset when it comes to life. A winning mindset when it comes to life. Look what it says in, in verse two. Or actually, go back to start, let's start in verse one. First of all, we gotta start right here. Therefore, I highlighted it for a reason. Therefore means that we've gotta look backwards. And if we look backwards, we see in chapter 11 this incredible description of people in their faith. These are risk takers of the faith. People who had given their lives to follow and trust God with everything. And it walks through this and it gives us some incredible descriptions of them. It starts off with some of them and it says this. Chapter 11, verse 32, it says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. I mean, nobody in the room is probably doing that right now. They quenched the flames of fire. They escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. 
Those are some incredible descriptions where we see God's power at work and we see God do the supernatural, the miraculous in the lives of people who had placed their faith completely in him. But it doesn't stop there. It also describes some other people. It says, but others who were tortured, some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning, some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. The author says, therefore, and he's pointing back. He's saying, look back at the lives of them. Some of them, they saw incredible breakthrough, but others, things didn't go as we would maybe expect they should go as people who trusted God with their lives. And he's wanting us to recognize something, but he's wanting us to look back. He's wanting us to consider the witnesses. That's our first step this morning to a winning mindset is to consider the witnesses. What he means by that is to look back at the lives of those that have gone before us, look back at the lives of those who had incredible faith. And he's pointing back specifically to people in the Old Testament. And the reason is, is because many of us can get incredibly deceived and we deceive ourselves. Life is good, God, I trust you. And then life changes, life becomes difficult. And we begin to think, hey, wait a, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. And we begin to think, I thought this was gonna be good, I thought this was always going to be great, and he's wanting us to look back to these witnesses knowing that it doesn't mean everything's gonna be great because we live in a broken, fallen, busted up, chaotic world. But he's saying, consider them, remember them, look back at them, I mean, consider Job for a second. Job was one of the three great men of the faith. The New Testament says that about him. Job had a lot of questions. Job went through a terrible season in his life where he, actually, he completely lost everything. His family, his possessions, his house, he lost everything of value to him. And he began to question God. And he said, God, I don't understand why this is happening to me. And God, in his response, says, listen, until you can think and understand and like I do, until you can create everything from nothing, you may not be able to really question me or try to understand everything there is to understand about God and his ways. And Job died without a full explanation of everything, but he did have a revelation of God's love and God's infinite power. That's the same for us. There are times that we will be revealed things about God, his love for us, his power at work in us, but we may not have complete, full understanding or revelation of all his ways and all of his thinking and his complete will. We may not completely understand that, and the author wants us to see this this morning. It's this picture that we're running this agonizing race where there's times where it feels great and there's other times where it doesn't feel so great and it's almost as if these witnesses are standing on the sidelines, on the sidewalks of the race and they're saying, don't stop. I know it hurts right now. I know it doesn't make sense right now. I know you're uncomfortable right now, but don't stop running. Run with endurance. You know, it's not just people that we read about in the Old Testament. There's people in our lives that are like this for us, that are, that are witnesses for us to encourage us and to strengthen us to keep running. When my wife was diagnosed with early breast cancer in 2018. This happened for us, which by the way, several of you have asked, because I mentioned this a couple months ago, my wife is doing great. Everything is great. Everything is looking great. It's just regular checkups at this point. We're super thankful for how that's turned out. But in the day of her diagnosis, we called Mark and Laura just to let them know. And within a matter of moments, they showed up at our house, and I'll never forget sitting on my couch with my wife, terrified, afraid of what the future held, 
not knowing all the answers, having a lot of doubt about God and his goodness. And I remember Mark and Laura sitting down. I remember Laura looking at us and saying, hey, listen, I know you're scared and I know you're terrified and I know you've got some doubts, but God is in control. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose trust in him. He numbered your days. So everything that's happening, he's got control of it. And it'd be one thing if she sat down on the couch and just said that to us and we're like, okay, great. But it was different because she had walked that same journey. She understood what we were experiencing, but she also has an incredible faith in a God just like we desire. And so when Mark and Laura left, my wife and I sat there and there was something different from when we were sitting there before they showed up because there's power in that. It's why the author is pointing us to this, to consider the witnesses. There's something powerful when we look at the lives of those who have gone before us to cheer us on, to say, hey, don't lose faith. Life's gonna be difficult, expect that. Consider the witnesses. It continues on in verse two, look what it says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You might wanna underline or circle the word founder and perfecter. The founder and perfecter of our faith, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, underline that circle, that hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. The second step to a winning mindset that this author wants to see this morning is we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. I highlighted, highlighted the word looking on purpose. That word look means to look out at, to fix our eyes on something that is beyond where we currently are. I can't help but to think of Rocky as he defeats Apollo Creed. And he is busted up, he is beat up, his eyes are swollen shut. I mean, Hollywood does an amazing job and look practically dead. And in that moment, in the, in the victory, actually it was a draw, but he's standing there, what is he doing? He's saying, Adrian, Adrian. He's looking out, he's looking out. He's trying to find Adrian. He's looking out beyond the ring, beyond the struggle, beyond the battle, beyond the chaos, trying to find Adrian. It's the same idea that this author wants us to see. He's wanting us to look out beyond our chaos beyond the difficulty, not just to anything random, not just to look beyond what's ahead, but to specifically look to Jesus, but to look at two specific things. He wants us to look at the promise attached here, and he wants us to look at the experience of Jesus. You notice he says that he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. When I look to the cross of Jesus, it gives me confidence in something. It doesn't give me confidence in myself, but it gives me confidence in Jesus because Jesus did everything so that he would not walk away from us, so that he could be with us, so that he could be right there with you and me. Think about it like this, when you buy a house, you finance a house, you make an offer, you have to put down earnest money. It's a certain amount of money that's significant enough that as you walk through the contractual period, it's enough to keep you from simply just walking away and abandoning the contract agreement. Jesus invested his life and when I recognize that and I look to the cross of Jesus and I realize that he invested his life, it gives me confidence that he's not gonna walk away from me. You see, it begins to take the pressure off of myself because I saw sometimes I can get stuck in this performance trap where I think I've gotta do everything the right way and if I fail or I fall on my face, then Jesus is gonna walk off and leave me behind. But when I look at the cross. He was the founder and the perfecter. He started the race, he finished the race, he won the race for me. It's not up to me. It was up to him. 
and he won. And so as a follower of Jesus, I cannot lose no matter what life throws at me, not, no, no matter how much I fall on my face. But he couples that with also pointing us to Jesus' experience at the cross. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, there was this scheme against him. The government officials, Pilate, had schemed a way to take care of Jesus. The religious had schemed a way to take care of Jesus, the hostility that they had towards him. The, the elite educated of that day, the Sadducees, had created a scheme to get rid of Jesus. Everybody was all in. Jesus was experiencing extreme hostility, so much to the point that it was gonna put him to death. And this author's saying, look to that. Why? You know, as a follower of Jesus, sometimes I can read things on social media or in our culture, I can hear things said on the news where people say, harsh things about people of the faith and they say, well, they're, they're, they're narrow-minded, they're old-fashioned, they're hypocritical and I hear those things and I, I can sometimes get triggered by that. Or sometimes it's even more personal. Personal criticism directed at me or my family or this place. And in that moment of hearing the criticism, whether it's valid or not, and listen, there's a lot of valid criticism out there. And sometimes we've got to listen to that so that we can understand and be aware of ourselves, but sometimes we hear that criticism and it triggers a defensiveness and I wanna speak up in defense of myself. But what's interesting is as I begin to process through it and I get past that defensiveness, I begin to let those thoughts stir in my head. And I begin to let the opinions and the criticism and the thoughts of other people begin to create doubt in my mind. And I begin to think, man, I'm not winning, I'm losing. Am I even, am I qualified? Am I even good at what I do? Am I okay? Like, what, have I failed? Have I completely done this wrong? What the author is doing is he's wanting us to look and say, hey, listen, winning is not up to you. You've already won in Jesus. And there's gonna be times where you fall on your face and you feel like you've lost, but Jesus won. There's gonna be times where you're gonna hear criticism. There's gonna be hostility against you. Jesus actually tells us in John 16 to expect that. But no matter what that is, Look to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. It takes the pressure off of ourselves. He says, expect it. You see, the cross shows that Jesus was all in for you and me, and then he's not gonna walk away. The resurrection is where my confidence comes from. But when I look to the cross, it also reminds me that pain can be, but I can take hearts, I can be confident because the power of the resurrection came through the pain of the cross and it's important for me to always remember that. So we consider the witnesses, we fix our eyes on Jesus and look what it says in verse five. It says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children? My child, do not regard lightly the discipline, that's an important word, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every child whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, for God is, God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? And then it skips down to verse 11. For the sake of time today, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen weak knees. He, the author uses two metaphors in this part of the passage. And what he wants us to understand is he's wanting us as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we look back to those that have gone before us, 
He wants us to trust him as a coach and a father. There's, there's, these, there's two parts to this. And I, you've maybe never heard that before, but I, it's a metaphor he's using because he wants us to understand something. Think of it as a coach or as a, as a physical trainer. What is the goal of the coach or the physical trainer in our lives? To make us stronger. It's to make us more capable of accomplishing something. He's saying, trust him. He's trying to strengthen something inside of you. What is he trying to strengthen? He's trying to strengthen our faith, our understanding, our delight in him. Think about a muscle. How does a muscle grow? How does a muscle get stronger? Well, it has to be broken down. And then once you break the muscle down, the body rebuilds it to be bigger and stronger, capable of doing more and accomplishing more. I used to do CrossFit for a few years, and um, it broke my body, actually. But um, as I would do CrossFit every single day, when I would leave the box, I never felt strong when I left the box. In fact, many times I wanted to call my wife and say, listen, hey, Bran, I love you. Tell the kids I love them. I think I'm about to die. Um, I hope I make it home. I felt like death when I would leave the box. But over time, I started getting stronger. I was capable of lifting a little bit more weight I was capable of running a little bit farther, a little bit faster. Over time, progress was being made. The muscle of our faith has to be broken down in order for it to become stronger. And we've got to trust that he's doing something in us. For some of us, what we need to hear today to begin to kind of understand this is maybe what you're going through in your life right now is actually God's plan for your life. And that may come as a little bit discouraging when you first consider that, but think about it. What if it's him using something that maybe doesn't feel great to form something greater in you, to form something that's strong so that you can understand him more, so that you can find delight in him. There's nothing in this earth that is more delightful than him himself. And he's trying to shape this in you. But he, he pairs this with this idea of a father. If you go back to the verse in verse five, he's using the word discipline. It's the word paideia. It's where we get podiatry from. But what he's doing is he's painting this picture of how a good father disciplines his children. Now, no one in this room is a perfect parent. We all want to be, but there's times that we've probably not disciplined our children in the most appropriate way. There are times for me where discipline is actually rooted more from uh, inconvenience or from anger or just being passive and lazy. But God is a perfect father. And so a perfect father disciplines with a motivation that comes from the love that he has for his children. And so he's not punishing us, he's not disciplining us so that we can pay him back for the pain that he's received. You see, where do I find confidence in that? Well, the whole message and purpose of Jesus going to the cross, the gospel message of Jesus is that he went to the cross and it was finished, it paid for. Everything before then and everything to come after then was paid for by Jesus on the cross. He took the punishment for me in my place. That's why we celebrated communion earlier this morning. He did what I was not capable of doing. Payment was made. So payment doesn't have to be made again. So God's not disciplining us to punish us. If that was the case, then he would be an abusive father. Any father who continued to punish their kid for the same thing over and over and over, we would say, that's a terrible father. But he has mercy for us. He is disciplining us because he's trying to form something in us that's strong, something that's new, something that's not of ourselves. Sometimes I hear people say, I think God's punishing me for the life I used to live. 
But that's simply not true. He paid for the life that you lived and he's trying to form and shape something in you new and strong and fresh. That pain that you have in your life, it's not his punishment. Maybe it's his way of trying to bring you back to himself so that you can experience him for the very first time. God is for you. Sometimes I think we have this idea that God is this older, precious moments creature with a British accent or this celestial uh, superpower pinata in the sky that we get to whack with our faith stick on, on occasion so that goodies will fall into our lives. And then when life doesn't go the way that we hoped it would go, we get angry, we get bitter, and we want to just throw in the towel and quit and say, I don't, I don't know that this is for me. As we step into a new year, what would it look like for you to trust that God is forming and shaping in you as his son, as his daughter. The struggle actually brings progress. It's difficult, it's a battle sometimes, but in that battle there's progress happening. My wife and I bought a house in a small town in far north Texas when we first got married. We paid $70,000 for this house. Let me correct myself. We went in debt $70,000 when we bought this house. And when you, pay, when you only pay $70,000 for a house, it doesn't come with a well-landscaped yard. It's not, it doesn't have this, all these great features on the outside. When we pulled up on the day that we had finally purchased that house, there were weeds everywhere. Angry, aggressive weeds. How did the neighbors know that we had moved into the house? I got a weed eater and I went to work, and I went crazy. I was a little man in a big salad. It looked like I had gotten in a fight with a bunch of green confetti when I walked out of that yard, and we started to bag up the weeds. We started to put out fertilizer. We started to plant seed. We started to put out mulch, black mulch. Some of you understand what that is. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> Over time, progress was happening. After a couple of months, was it beautiful? Was it this pristine, beautiful, elegant yard? No, no. But there was a little less weeds and a little bit more grass. There was progress that was happening. And if you had driven through that small town and decided to take a, a left on our street and drive by our house and just kind of look and take a snapshot, you would have been tempted to look at that yard and say, clearly nobody lives there. Look at all those weeds. And you'd be wrong, you judgmental person. <laughs> because you weren't able to see the progress. Listen, there are times where people in this world and even people in church will look at us and say, man, they are so messed up. They're the ones that are supposed to have it all together to be Jesus followers, and yet they still live some really dysfunctional lives. They still fall on their face. They're such hypocrites. And they're right, but by the grace of God, there's a little bit more grass and a little less weeds. It's how Jesus works in our lives. In the struggle, there's progress. The secret sauce to all of this is we find, if we go back to, to verse two, look at verse two again. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right-hand throne of God. Notice the word joy who for the joy that was set before him, what was it that kept Jesus on the cross? Was it the nails? No. 
Jesus had walked on water. He had raised the dead. He had done miracle after miracle after miracle. He could have come down off that cross. It was the joy set before him. The joy for what? It was the joy of what he was going to have after he endured the cross. And the author is telling us to focus on the joy. Focus on that joy. The joy for what? The joy for what he didn't have yet. What did he not have? Was it the approval of his father in heaven? No, he had that. Was it kingship of the entire universe? No, he had that too. Was it adoration of the angels? No, Jesus had all of that. What was the one thing Jesus didn't have? You, me. That was the joy that he was after. The joy that he was chasing after was the joy of rescuing you and me from a meaningless life. Rescuing you and me from death. Rescuing, rescuing you and me from complete separation from our heavenly father. He was rescuing us from ourselves. And when we see that, when we focus on that, something comes alive in us. And our life becomes a response to who he is, what he did, and what he is doing in our lives. This is where the power, when you go back to verse one, comes from. Look at verse one. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. How do we do that? It's impossible to do that until we've understood and we've experienced and we've seen what Jesus did. Because once we see that and we understand it and we stay focused on it, then this whole laying aside every weight or sin is easy because it's a response to who he is, not something that we do on our own. Go back to Michael Phelps for just a second. Think about that. That's, this is, this is um, Olympic season. If you've ever watched a swimming event, you don't see anybody in the Olympic swimming pool that's got a Duck Dynasty beard, blue jeans, and a baseball cap, and, and boots on their feet swimming through the pool. Why not? Because nobody's going to win that race. And so, listen, there's no rules against that. They could have a Duck Dynasty beard if they wanted to, but nobody chooses that because it would slow them down. It would keep them from experiencing everything they were hoping to experience. So we begin to see Jesus. We begin to recognize Jesus, we begin to understand Jesus and we see what he did for us. We're willing to respond. And this is where we're going over the next several weeks. But before we get there, we've gotta have the right mindset. We've gotta have the right perspective. Before we can come up with any sort of practices in our lives or habits in our lives, we've gotta focus on the proper perspective. I'll close with this simple illustration. When you think about a building, you think about a wartime, two opposing forces battling it out for a win. Who are the people on the battlefield who are nervous, who are afraid, terrified? Who are the ones that are stressed out? Who are the ones unable to experience peace? It's the alive. You see, the dead don't care. The dead don't respond. The dead aren't trying to run from the bombs falling from the sky. The dead aren't trying to dodge the bullets that are flying through the air. It's the alive that are most aware of the struggle. And for some of us this morning, I'm hoping that that's actually encouraging for us because I know there's some here that maybe have struggled with an addiction for a really long time. Struggling with the shame the hurt that that's caused, the frustration that you just can't ever seem to get over it. And you've begun to think in your mind, if there's a God who really loves me, then why am I still struggling with this issue in my life? If he really cared about me, I wouldn't still be in this same, same place. 
but I think you can find confidence this morning because the fact that you're aware of the struggle, you're aware of the battle, tells me that you're alive. Because the dead aren't aware of the struggle. And when you come alive in Christ, you begin to see the brokenness around you. You begin to see the brokenness inside of you. And you begin to think, man, I am a mess. But thank God for Jesus, I have won. And before we can focus on any practices, and we're gonna get there over the next few weeks, we've gotta have the proper perspective. So what do we do this morning? Just look here. Consider the witnesses. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Trust him as coach and father. And focus on the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? It was you. Listen, I know there's some here this morning that you've got lots of questions. You're still, not, you're still not sure about this whole Jesus thing, about this whole God that loves you thing. Listen, I'm just gonna encourage you. We're super glad you're here. We're thankful that you're here and we believe this is the best place you could be. And I'm gonna challenge you, just press in. Just press in, keep investigating. Because here's what I'm confident will happen. As you continue to investigate this God who loves you, you'll begin to experience, you'll begin to know more, you'll begin to understand a little bit more. And as you begin to understand and know him, you'll begin to try to follow him with some things in your life. You'll begin to trust him with certain areas in your life. And as you begin to experience the freedom that he brings in the areas that you begin to trust him with, you'll find a place where you say, you know what? I'm not gonna just trust him with a little bit. I'm gonna trust him with everything because I haven't experienced a freedom in him that I've never experienced on my own. Jesus, here's my life. But you just press in today. Don't get overwhelmed with what you don't know. Just press in. Just keep seeking answers. For some, you're sitting here today and you've trusted Jesus. You would say Jesus is the boss of your life, but you're struggling. The challenge is the same. The nudge is the same this morning. Just press in. Hang on. The fact that you're aware of the struggle is proof that you are alive. And we're not gonna walk through this year, we're, gonna, we're not, not gonna walk through this season or this journey in your life right now that's difficult and heavy all alone. We don't want you to be alone and isolated. We want you to be locked arms with us at Community of Faith in 2020 so that you can continue to live for the win. So you show back up and you plug in and let's walk through this together no matter what life brings at us. Can we pray? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you did everything possible to rescue us, to bring us back to you, so that this life could have no claim on our lives, so this world could not destroy us, so that we would not be broken down and defeated. You give us victory, and we're thankful for that. But God, I also know that in this room, a lot of us don't feel that way. We don't feel the victory. We don't feel like we've won. And so I pray that you and your supernatural work would do everything in your power to strengthen us, to shape something in us that's new, that's fresh, that's different. Something that's clearly of you, not of any one person or any one group, but I pray that you would work and you would work in a powerful way in our lives. God, I pray that we would have the courage and the confidence to simply just lay our lives down for you and say, Jesus, we trust you. Show us how to live. I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in every single life in this room and in this church and in this community. Would what happens here today not stay here, but it would go out and it would make an impact on the world around us. We love you. 
We trust you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.